Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today, I have with me U.S. and retired Admiral Gregory Johnson, also known as Grog. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here today. Well, Lisa, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be hard for me to call you Grog, not knowing you particularly well, but I think it's important that other people understand why it is that that is your nickname. Well, it comes from my profession. I was in the Navy and I was a pilot, and all pilots have a call sign. You actually use it for practical purposes, tactical. Uh, That's the name of your flight. If you're the flight leader, it's Grog Flight, and you're doing radio checks and what have you, and so everybody has a call sign, and you don't actually get to pick your call sign. Not everybody gets to be Maverick. And uh, so it evolved that my name's close to Greg. Probably also had to do with a little bit of too much liberty or something with, uh, as we call them, 12-ounce curls. And uh, so I got the name Grog, and that's that was in 1970, and most everybody that knows me from the Navy still calls me Grog. The Navy wasn't a natural path for you in, in your life. You grew up in the county, and you yeah. had the potential for, for going into potato farming. Mm-hmm. Um, thought you might want to be a lawyer, but ended up going into the military, unlike many of your family mm-hmm. members. Tell me about that decision Well, ever since making. I was a young kid and started reading books, we had the bookmobile. Came around once a month. and Even when I was in grade school, I started reading books about the law and the lawyers and equal justice under law, and I've had kind of an idealistic streak. And so that was my consuming interest to become an attorney. And uh, I went to the University of Maine after I graduated uh, from Caribou High School, and my major was government. And then uh, I applied to the, I went applied to one university, applied to one law school, University of Maine Law School, and uh, but I was graduating in June of 1968, and there were no more deferments, and I was uh, told by the lady at the draft board in Caribou that uh, I was going to graduate on June 7th, I think it was, and on June 10th she was going to give me a one-way ticket to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and in eight weeks, Private Johnson, you're going to be headed for Vietnam. So uh, that was a little bit of a denial, and I had to withdraw from the University of Maine Law School. I got my $300 back. And uh, ended up going in the Navy with the intent to do the minimum amount of time and then come back to law school. But as I found out, I, or as I learned, it was a really compelling career. And I stayed in and spent 36 years in the Navy. You and my father actually have a little bit of a parallel path. You, My, my mother and father were both at the University of Maine at roughly yeah. the same time. No, I knew you who your father was. Yep, Charlie Belial. Charlie Belial, he played football. Yes, yeah. and was in the Tangerine Bowl, I believe, yes, somewhere around 1960-something. Right. Yeah, seven. I think it was like the, uh, was well, I was at the University of Maine. I can't remember exactly which year it was. But yes, yeah. somewhere in the 60s. Played Youngstown State. There you go. The so, there you go. I believe. We'll, we'll, we'll fit this history together, the yeah. two of us. But then also he ended up going into the Navy and went down to Jacksonville where he was doing his residency in family medicine. Mm-hmm. And um, I was with him as a very small baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I vividly remember um, just the, the culture of the Navy and mm-hmm. came to learn that this was really the culture of the military in general. Mm-hmm. It was very family oriented. There was really a sense of camaraderie and, you know, mm-hmm. it was its own very 
kind of um, specific world mm-hmm. that's different than I think many of us yeah. who are not in the military encounter. So you probably lived on NAS Jacksonville at the NAS Jacksonville Hospital. Well, we I've been there. Mm-hmm. Don't remember it very well because I was quite young, but yeah. we lived in Orange Park, not Orange that Park. far away. That's where I had my first home. I was at Cecil Field which is the, uh, where the tactical airplanes were. NAS Jacks had helicopters and P-3s, and then it was Mayport where surface ships out at the coast. So that hospital served all of it. And In fact, our oldest daughter was born in that hospital, and I spent uh, all the time, first 25 years, flying in and out of Cecil Field. So we lived in Jacksonville a lot, including Orange Park. Well, there you go. Yeah. I think I had... I think at least maybe four siblings that actually mm-hmm. may have been born um, in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. 10 of us, so yeah. it's hard for me to keep track exactly, yeah. but quite a uh-huh. few. So there's yeah. there's another kind of commonality. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, our first child was born there, and the second child was born in Bethesda during my first uh, assignment in the Pentagon. So I know that another commonality that you share with my parents is not growing up in a household that necessarily was um, pointing you towards an interest in art. That um, my my parents both have come to actually mm-hmm. like and appreciate art in part through mm-hmm. watching me do this work and watching me work with the mm-hmm. Portland Art Gallery. Yours was a different path. Yeah, slightly. Uh, books became important to me. Of course, your parents always pushed you because they wanted a better life for you. And it was always that I was going to, all the children were going to go to college. That's what they worked for. And so books became very important. We didn't really have very many, but like I said, back in those days, there was a bookmobile and it went around. And so every month I would get two or three books and, and uh, I started reading books about law and read fiction, read all kinds of books. And so I had this passion for reading. And uh, slowly, uh, I got a, started realizing uh, how important art is and literature and poetry. And it actually ties into my concept of the profession I was in, because I thought of my profession as a profession of peace. I was in the peace business through national security, U.S. national security, and the uh, road to peace is I believe, comes through strength and is important for us to have a strong, credible military, but also, of course, we need the political and national backing to have the will to use that force, or it's not going to be of any good. So I was consumed by that and the diplomatic side of it, and I happened to work for some people who were extremely capable, polished uh, diplomats, one was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Colin Powell, and I was his executive assistant for two years, and we traveled all over the world, and I watched him. And then I worked three years in the office of the Secretary of Defense when a son of Maine was the Secretary of Defense, William Cohen, and he was an incredibly effective and polished diplomat and a way to break down barriers, whether you're in Russia at that time it was the Soviet Union, or in our allies is to talk about their culture and always have a line from poetry or who their famous authors are or the artists or scientists. Like you went to Serbia and you had to mention Tesla. And uh, so I always picked up that from them, and so I got very fascinated by it. And we often visited U.S. ambassadors, 
and there was always art in their homes and in the embassies and a couple of places we went where the, the ambassador was from Maine. Uh, ambassador O'Leary unfortunately passed away, but he was the ambassador in uh, Chile. And I was on a visit there with Secretary Cohen and he had a reception at his house and it was full of art from Maine. And so when I became a senior commander in Europe and responsible for all the nations in Europe and Africa, at that time, I got this book, Art of the Islands of Maine, or uh, Art of the Maine Islands, and I'd buy them 50 at a time. And so when you travel then, you always wanted to have a house gift or a gift to leave to your counterpart because they always gave you a gift. So the gift that I used in the four years that I was a senior commander in Europe was this book, and I kept buying them in boxes of 50. And I must have, so throughout Africa and Europe, I don't know if you can still find them, but I bet I used about 150 to 200 copies of this particular book. And so I became fascinated by art and started trying to collect pieces to, in the modest resources that we had. But I also comes back to this theme of, of peace and the business of peace, because you're always looking for the better angels of mankind. And I think art and literature and poetry are certainly a critical, critical aspect of the better angels of mankind. And so I found that to be a very interesting uh, venue or pathway to get to the better angels of people. And uh, so I became quite interested in it. And of course, my passion was for particularly Maine artists and things that spoke to me about Maine. Tell me about some of your early favorites. If you're looking in the Art of the Maine Islands book, who was an artist that, that kind of spoke to you? Well, of course, all the very established and famous ones, which I don't have any of them, you know, from Winslow Homer to, uh, you know, the Weiss to all manner of uh, Fairfield Porter. Uh, so, the, you know, I would look at those things. But I think the first piece of art I bought, and that was because my uh, deceased wife uh, was from Bucksport, and her mother took art lessons from a guy named Francis Amabi in Blue Hill. And so I think the first piece of art that I bought was some of his. And uh, I have quite a few pieces from uh, Francis Hamabi. And, uh, and then I became familiar with Eric Hopkins. And uh, as an aviator, uh, and Eric, of course, learned how to fly. And I think that greatly impacted the direction he went with his art. So I was fascinated by his work. And we have several pieces of Eric Hopkins, both uh, at my place in Harpswell and my current wife, Carol Hancock, at her house in Casco. So those are two artists in particular that really uh, spoke to me, and we have a lot of their works. Eric is known for doing a lot with horizon lines <coughs> mm -hmm. and me. also trees. Yeah. So if you look at the... And, and he has very specific sort of mm -hmm. trees kind of looking mm -hmm. down from above. Yeah. So is that, when you look at his art, does that mirror your experience? Well, of... that was the perspective I had on a lot of things because I spent a lot of time in the air. And so that fascinated with me, and I liked that. And, of course, he had his islands and the, the trees, and all that made me think of Maine and the coast. And so it, it really 
<coughs> excuse me, spoke to me and still speaks to me to this day. The interesting thing about Eric Hopkins, of course, is that he grew up on a main island himself. Mm -hmm. And so he not only had this perspective from the air, but he also had a very um, unique perspective of having grown up on a fairly good size, but mm -hmm. still remote main island. Yeah. No, I, and uh, of course, the Camden Hills uh, feature strongly in all of his uh, paintings. And uh, for Carol and me, uh, who I, she was a cancer widow and I was a cancer widower and we were introduced to each other. And so we were actually engaged on Isla Ho, looking at the Camden Hills. We spent a lot of time on North Haven and uh, we like it out there and we're looking at the Camden Hills. And we actually got married at Point Lookout on the Camden Hills. So in that sense, it uh, really speaks to us. And that's another reason why we're very attached to Eric and his paintings, and I got to know him pretty well, and he helped me on some things, uh, as uh, my passion is public higher education, and he did a nice, when he had his gallery, his own gallery in, uh, in uh, Rockland, we did a University of Maine alumni meeting there that features Maine and art, and he gave a painting as a door, you know, we could sell the raffle tickets, and gave a wonderful presentation to those who were able to attend that. I think that where his gallery was is where there's a contemporary art museum now in, in uh, Rockland. And uh, he was very generous with his time, even though, of course, he went to RISD, not to one of our schools. But yeah, wonderful, wonderful guy. A great son of me. Why is public higher education important to you? Well, I went to the University of Maine. I grew up in a rural part of Maine and uh, in a very tiny community with 50 people. We had a little one-room schoolhouse and I went eight grades there and then I went to Caribou High School and and then I went to University of Maine and that started opening up my horizons and expanding my field of view and then I went off to the Navy and you know I'll never forget when I left on my first deployment and uh, would have been the yeah, three weeks before my first child, our first child was born in early September of 1971, and I could not believe that I was going to be on this U.S. aircraft carrier and we were going to go across the entire Atlantic Ocean. And uh, so I spent my life doing that, and it uh, brought a sense of wonderment. And uh, uh, so uh, that's a part of how... I realized that the higher education really opened up my horizons. And so when I came back to Maine, I wanted to get engaged in public higher education. And I have been with the University of Maine. I was on their board of visitors and uh, was on the board of trustees for the system for two terms. And I was an overseer for nine years, a board of overseers at Colby. I was even on the board of Mecca for a while until I had to resign from that because I was engaged with the University of Maine. So I think public higher education, I call it the trip ticket for the rural corners of Maine, and everybody forgets if they live in Cumberland and New York counties that that's only about 10% of the state, and there's 90% of it that's rural and not as well resourced, and public higher education is the trip ticket, and not only for them individually, but for the economic well-being of the entire state. So I'm very passionate about it. 
Well, having practiced in rural areas and now being up at the um, at the hospital up in Augusta, Waterville area, mm-hmm. and um, working with, I will say, younger patients that mm-hmm. have gone into the University mm-hmm. of Maine system, I think I think you're describing something that's really important. Mm-hmm. That it's it becomes something that is more accessible, and it mm-hmm. is a way for people to broaden their horizons without even yeah. leaving the state. True. And, of course, uh, very interested in bringing more research and development dollars to our one research university that we have, which doesn't have a medical school, as you well know, which help hurts you a little bit in another source besides National Science Foundation, uh, the various government agencies that uh, do research, of course, is NIH, and without a medical school, it's harder to to uh, compete for grants from them, but that's all very important. Of course, we now have the program with Tufts, and I think there used to be an affiliation with the University of Vermont Medical School. So we're still reaching out, but bringing, more importantly, bringing doctors, dentists, lawyers, professional people to the far corners of the state, because not only is there that profession required, but they're also pillars of every, their respective communities. and the social fabric of our communities is is evaporating, and I, uh, that's another area of concern and uh, in our rural communities, particularly in Aroostook County, and uh, I call the Rim Counties, uh, Washington, Piscataquis County, what have you, the far reaches of Penobscot, Somerset, Franklin, and Oxford. So, so that's really an area of, I don't want to say concern, but a, an area of some passion. Well, I think you and I share similar concerns because one of my jobs um, as the assistant chief medical officer is recruiting and retention Mm -hmm. for the Waterville, Augusta Mm -hmm. area. And um, it's been really gratifying to see um, one of our one of our recent um, surgeons that came in went to Colby. Mm-hmm. Uh, another surgeon that came in actually went to Caribou High School and then mm-hmm. went to the University of New England and came back. Mm-hmm. So I do think that there is opportunity there. I think mm-hmm. that people are understanding that um, their Maine has a lot to offer and that yeah. these communities really do have, um, they're safe, they have great education, mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to build and maintain great mm-hmm. health care and even the arts opportunities mm-hmm. that you're describing. Yeah. So I think there's a lot to sell. I think it's a great place to raise families. A lot of our people go away, start families, but then they come back. I think there was a big push on that during the pandemic, or during COVID, and people came back. And uh, of course, with uh, the way workforces are employed now and stuff, and people being able to work from home a lot, and uh, uh, another important aspect of this whole thing about education and what have you, is getting broadband into the nooks and crannies of the state of Maine. Uh, and I think that will help also populate these areas and make it, and of course it's what we call the trailing spouse. If one person gets a job, what is the partner in the, the relationship going to, how are they going to get employed, which is always a challenge in our rural areas. You know, even Jackson Labs, our universities, what have you, they have these kinds of challenges. So there's a lot I think we could do to that, and broadband is a big part of that as well. Yeah, and again, another parallel, because when I think about what we're trying to do in healthcare, 
we have um, digital equity and trying mm -hmm. to, there are many patients who don't necessarily mm -hmm. yeah. um, have smartphones and have access readily, but if we can actually connect them to mm -hmm. our medical staff with broadband mm -hmm. and kind of enable that, that ongoing connection, I think that that and education, those those really are the, the mm -hmm. pillars that you're describing that will yeah. bring and keep people in our state, in our state. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, supporting and building interest in for our, uh, for Augusta to strongly support public higher education. And uh, it's very critical for the reasons we just discussed, but also uh, I think we have great opportunities as uh, the Route 93 corridor in Massachusetts starts to spread out into southern New Hampshire and into southern Maine. Uh, we've got to provide a workforce uh, that can take those kinds of jobs, and I think we're working at it. I think the Rue Institute will help. That's a, a good advancement forward, and hopefully there's ways that uh, the public higher education system in Maine can leverage uh, and cooperate and collaborate with them to feed more people in to create a workforce. It'll, we're still in some ways tied to the Industrial Revolution, and we've got to jump into the uh, information age, and not only in terms of keep uh, creating or developing a workforce that can work there, but in the minds of the citizens of Maine. They've got to forget about textile factories and shoe factories and pulp and paper mills and what have you and, and leapfrog into the next, uh, uh, to the IT, information age. How have you maintained your connection to the county? And for people who are listening or watching, we're talking mm -hmm. about Aroostook County. You and I mm -hmm. know what this means because yeah. we're from Maine, yeah. but um, how, how do you maintain your connection? Well, uh, I still have some relatives up there. And, uh, you know, uh, I also, uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a little sad to say it this way, but my father and uh, my brother are buried in the little cemetery in Westmanland, and my mom will be buried there, and I still have some aunts and uncles uh, that live up there. And so when my dad died, uh, my mom moved to uh, Brunswick, and... Uh, that was fortuitous because I had been to Brunswick like once in my life before she moved there. I was in the Navy then. And, uh, but that brought us to Harpswell and started looking at Harpswell. And so in 1992, while I was still in the Navy, we bought a piece of property with uh, 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 had an old farmhouse and a barn on it and about 50 acres of land that either had springs in it so you couldn't drive on it or it was ledge. But it was called a farm, and, and uh, we bought that. And then when I retired in 04, we came back there to live. And I had never even heard of Harpswell until my mother moved to Brunswick and we started going to the Dolphin Marina, the old Dolphin Marina. Uh, and, uh, and my wife at the time declared that this is where we were going to live when I retired. So she wasn't going back to Bucksport, and we weren't going back to the county. So that's how I ended up in Harpswell. Well, having also, uh, because I went to Bowdoin, mm -hmm. um, and also I've actually went to the University of Maine, um, I, I spent time at the Old Dolphin mm -hmm. and appreciated both the Old Dolphin and the New Dolphin and mm -hmm. all that Harpswell yeah. was and is. And yeah. I, I think it is a really, it is a really beautiful part of the state. Yeah. Um, and I also think about, 
these other beautiful parts of the state like the county that, mm-hmm. you know, it, are equally wonderful, but maybe don't have the salt water, maybe mm-hmm. don't have the same kinds of views. And I think about how do we encourage people to not only visit those parts of the state, mm-hmm. but also stay there and also work there. And what you're describing, I think, is really important to that, the yeah. the opportunities. I think uh, the county's having a real challenge these days, and they're starting to get focused. I get the Bangor Daily online and track the county edition and try to keep track of what it's doing. But I know Holton and Pascal and Fort uh, Caribou uh, and the St. John Valley, uh, various towns up there are all trying to work to, and find ways to attract people to come up there. And of course, real estate is a bargain, relatively speaking, and uh, there's a lot of it available. When I grew up, I think the county peaked at about 110,000 people, and now there's just uh, about 62 or 63,000 people. So it's been quite a uh, quite a drawdown in the people and the human resources that are there, and hopefully, and I think it will. And all of this about getting uh, broadband accessibility and what have you, it's a wonderful place. I loved growing up there and wouldn't trade it for anything. So growing up in the county, first of all, you didn't know that you would join the Navy. You didn't know that you weren't going to be a lawyer. You mm-hmm. didn't know that you were going to like art. Mm-hmm. I assume you probably didn't have any sense that you'd be traveling the world alongside people who were really effectively acting as ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Do you look back at your younger self and um, have any thoughts about what you might say to that person? To people that are, in, that are now in my place? Yeah, because I think sometimes when you grow up in a very specific yeah. way, you don't really know what, what could actually be out there. No, I, uh, uh, I, you, you don't know. I would have never, up until the day I gra- joined the Navy, I never would have thought that I would have ever, ever been in that profession. I, hadn't, I didn't take, I wasn't ROTC at Maine. Uh, no one in my family had been in the military. And, uh, but an opportunity came, I took it because in reality, I wanted to avoid the draft is why I picked the program called Aviation Officer Candidate School, which was just like the movie Officer and a Gentleman. And my drill instructor was just like Lou Gossett in that uh, movie. And that transformed my life. And I got in there and then as a, I had an opportunity to go to the Naval War College in a special program where they wanted to take some lieutenants to the junior course in Newport. And uh, so that was as close as I could get to Maine. Uh, and uh, so I volunteered for this program. There were six of us. And once I went to the Naval War College, that's when I had this transformation in my mind that aviation wasn't an end in itself. It was a means towards an end. And the end I was in was the national security business. And the output from that should be peace. And peace that provides an environment where every individual can maximize their aspirations and their full potential. And so that's what I thought I was doing. And once I had put it in that context and that uh, way of approaching my career, then I made the decision, no, this is something I want to stay and be part of. And so that's what I thought I was doing. And that's those were the outputs that I thought were important. And I think in some ways uh, we 
have been successful. I, in terms of outlook worldwide, I say I'm a moderate realist, a passionate internationalist, and I have a streak of idealism in me. And you know, still like to think that American democracy and free markets are uh, the way of the future. But right now, autocratic rule is in ascendancy, and and uh, you know, democracy is actually in decline. So I find this very concerning when you move from Maine or the United States to a world uh, stage. And I think we all should take pause from that and think about it and how what things can we do uh, to uh, turn that trend around and you know, get it going in the other direction. So one of the things that you did was to try to connect through art and mm -hmm. culture with people do you feel like there's a way that we could take that lesson and and use it more broadly as we try to get back on the same um, wavelength with people around the world? Yes, I absolutely do. Again, I I view it as art, the arts, humanities. Take the rough edges off from all of us. And what I've learned, we hate to admit it, and we sometimes get engaged in wishful thinking that the, whatever genes there are in us that can quickly turn us to do the most horrible things against fellow men and mankind, uh, I believe that that's, that's unfortunately a latent capacity that you can't imagine it, but people have in them. And when times are changing rapidly and people are fearful, there's always a demagogue that can come along and play that music and people will often respond to it. And so I think that anything we can do in terms of the arts, the humanities, uh, like I said, that brings out the better angels in us. And so I think it's a very important instrument. And music is a universal language. Art is a universal language. Literature is a universal language. And so I think they're very important. So I'm a big proponent of the humanities, and uh, we need all the STEM to keep competitive in R&D, but we need to have, and that's why I like, you know, what is called the liberal education of a university. And yes, you have the technical, and we need that to compete in the, in the world today, but we also need to make sure people are well-grounded in the humanities, and that's also part of that is building, becoming good citizens and having, a, again, you've got to have something that, feeds and grows those better angels DNA, part of the DNA, uh, so that we can not be vulnerable to those who might come, whether it's, uh, there's all kinds of demagoguery and, uh, you know, autocracy in the world today, but I think that this is one way that we can uh, put up some barriers to that. So it sounds like what you're saying is, we need to look to the arts to strengthen these better angels to mm -hmm. kind of combat the other side of things. Mm -hmm. I think uh, if people can appreciate it, whether it's music, whatever it is, I think that that is a good, good uh, prophylactic for the, the uh, darker side. But of course, even in... People who are masters at that use the arts to try to help them too for, you know, 
Nazi Germany uh, was very prolific in it. Uh, you know, some of the best music, dance, literature in the world is Russian literature, dance, music. And so uh, it can go both ways. But I think on the whole, it's very important. And I think it's very important in our schools that as times get hard, uh, the other area is physical education and physical training because I think our country spends way more than anybody else on health care and we do acute care very well and we don't do healthfulness and wellness very well at all. And so our outputs are deteriorating. They're not improving, they're getting worse. That's a troublesome thing. Same with education. Our education system, we put more in it than any other country, yet our outputs, as we just learned last week, uh, are downward. And so I consider those to be incredibly important issues that we need to address. And unfortunately, we're at a time where our government has forgot that they're in there to govern. They forgot the governing part. And uh, so I find uh, that uh, quite concerning. And I think it's probably one of the biggest issues. In fact, the profession I come from, the cohort group we're interested in, there's 18 to 24-year-olds. And right now in America, how many, only 30% of all the young people in America who are between 18 and 24 are eligible to serve in the armed forces of the United States. 70% of them aren't from just plain not being able to pass ASVAP tests because our schools have become a factory and they push them through and they, they, they can't do tests and they can't. Obesity, drug abuse, uh, all kinds of reasons. So 70% of Americans, America's youth can't even serve in the armed forces of the United States. So I think that should be something that should be concerning with people. And the, also the idea of public service. And uh, uh, th that is, I think, eroding as well. Government is having a hard time filling jobs. The services are all having a hard time uh, recruiting people. And I think our military in particular should be an exact mirror image of society. And that's not the case. Particularly so not on socioeconomic grounds. Uh, and uh, rural poor and inner city poor are the people who end up doing the fighting for us. Kind of always has been. And so I think that that's something that we ought to take a look at and getting, I'm not saying we should go back to the draft, but I would think that we might start thinking about universal public service, which I would be very much in favor of. Well, you've given me a lot to think about. We have a lot of, uh, a lot of different areas that yeah. we could start working on. But, you know, it does actually make me happy because my, my youngest daughter's boyfriend is in the Army, mm -hmm. and he is out of Fort Drum. He's a Beautiful. helicopter. He's on yeah. a helicopter flight crew. Yeah. And he is one of the ones who has chosen to join the military and has passed all of the um, tests mm -hmm. and recently was promoted. Wonderful. So I, I look to Ryan as uh -huh. kind of hope for the future. So yeah. the, the good thing about what you're describing is that we mm -hmm. have people who are currently doing this. We have mm -hmm. people who are working on it. So even though we've got a, we've got a lot of room to move, yeah. We're still moving forward in a positive direction. Yeah. And uh, right now, the and that's I'm very proud of Ryan, and I wish him very well, and I'm thankful for his service. And But the, the uh, number of families that have anybody 
that's a relative, aunt, uncle, cousin, parent, is getting smaller and smaller. And uh, it used to be 70% of our Congress had prior military service. Now it's around 15%. And so, uh, and so it's actually the people that are on active duty tend to be all sons and daughters of people who were on active duty. And so we're narrow, necking down. And again, in a democracy, I don't think that's the direction we should be going. Well, <clears throat> I will say we have a lot of people in my family in the military, so I feel like we're doing our part. You're doing your part. And yeah. also, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that military is a good career path that more people should consider, and I think it should go really across the demographics because yeah. we are talking about promoting peace, as you've yeah. described. Yeah. And in fact, I'm sure your dad probably uh, tended to me or my family all those years we lived in Jacksonville. We were there all through the 70s. I don't know what years he was there and all through the 80s. He was there at the beginning of the 70s, so yeah, well, there you go. We were there too, and that's the hospital we went to. Well, I'm yeah. sure he'll be watching this, as will my mom, yeah. who was also down there with him, so yeah. I'm, I'm guessing. I think uh, they came to an alumni event that I had in my barn in Hawkswell. Yes, they I did. I remember reaching out to him. And uh, he was kind enough to uh, attend one of those. So say hi and uh, go Black Bears. All right. Mom and Dad, you heard this. Mary yeah. and Charlie, yeah. you heard this from Grog Johnson. Hi and go Black Bears, okay? Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Mm -hmm. I think you have a, a broad perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And and, and really, is, as a son of Maine, it, it makes me happy to know that you're, you're back and, and you're in the state and you're passionate about the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I didn't even get to all the artists I wanted to mention. But anyway, and I, the real person I wanted to do a shout-out for is, Will, uh, is Emma. Oh, Emma Wilson. Yeah, and uh, she uh, is a... I didn't know her, but Carol knows her, and they've been close for a long time, and we've just had a project at our house, and, uh, well, Carol did some redoing of her house in Casco, and bought some new pieces of art. And so Emma's been out there many times and brought all kinds of things to look them, put them in different places and decide what to buy. And uh, then um, um, she came to our place several times, not only which ones to buy and the ones that we already had, where to put them and even helped us hang them. And no, oh, she's wonderful. And I forgot to mention, I think, did I mention Philip and Matt Barter? No. And Jane Damon and Eric Hopkins and Ann Trainer Dominga, I think is her name. Ann Trainer Demang is how she pronounces Demang. it. Yes. So we have a lot of PAG artists in uh, between her house and mine. Most of them we have their stuff in both places. And uh, so anyway, uh, we love Portland Art Gallery and uh, Emma, and uh, until about a month ago, I didn't know that Kevin was the owner and that you were involved with this, so I consider it a great honor to have had this conversation with you. Well, we you. also push photography, too. We have a lot of photography, and there's one in particular I'll put a plug into him. I don't, I don't think, know if you, his name is Rob Smith, and he lives just down the road from us in uh, Harpswell, and he's a fantastic uh, photographer. And, uh, you know, we also have some by a guy named Clyde Butcher 
uh, photographer and Tom Mengelson. So we have some, and we have uh, quite a bit of sculpture too, and uh, glass. Uh, so all different areas, and it all speaks to us in different ways, and always takes the rough edges off things. Yes. Better angels. Better angels. We want those better angels. That's right. And I feel yeah. the same way about the art we have in our house. Yeah. Yeah. It all, it speaks to us every single, every single day. And uh, you don't even realize it, but it, I think it softens the edges all the time. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and I've been speaking with USN retired Admiral Gregory Johnson, also called Grog. Um, I really appreciate the time that he's taken to come and speak thank with you. me today. And thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the state of Maine. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed our conversation. And uh, thank you for what you're doing through these various broadcasts that you do. My pleasure. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to or watching Radio Maine.